Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right, so I want to start off by playing a little game. Is that okay? It's called, What's Your Favorite? And I'm going to put two images on the screen, and you're going to raise your hand and tell me which is your favorite. Does that all make sense? Should I go over it again? No, you got it. Okay. First, favorite color, green or blue? So if your favorite color is green, raise your hand. What about, okay, now blue, raise your hand. Wow. Blue, blue wins it today. Okay, favorite candy? Snickers or M&M's? So if Snickers, raise your hand. M&M's, raise your hand. All right, yeah, some clear winners so far. Okay, favorite Star Wars movie? Is it Empire Strikes Back or is it Empire Strikes Back? If it's Empire, yeah. All right, last one. Favorite pastor? Is it, is it Don or Warren? <laughs> no, don't do that one. I already know what your favorite one is anyway. Okay. We'll do an easy one. Okay, favorite kid. Is it your oldest kid? Is it your youngest kid? Girl, boy? Don't answer that one, actually. Uh, the counseling required uh, after, after that one is, is it's not worth it. So here's the lesson, though. Favorites. Favorites are fine until they're not. Favorite foods, favorite restaurant, favorite baseball team. That's all well and good. Not a problem, but uh, playing favorites with movies and candy, no, no problem. But playing favorites with people, well, that's something else. Playing favorites in the church, okay, that's even worse. And this is what uh, Pastor James, who wrote the letter called James, wants to talk to us about today. So if you were here the last couple of weeks, or if you weren't here, uh, maybe you don't know, we've started a new series on the book of James. And uh, it's, it's a letter uh, written by James, Jesus' half-brother, 
and he is the leader of the Jerusalem church in this early Christian movement of the first century. And James's heart here in chapter 2, which we just heard read, as he writes to these Jewish believers who are, who are scattered across the region, is to hold on to real faith. That's, that's the big idea of the letter, to hold on to real faith. Not just real belief or real doctrine, uh, right? And as we've said, believing the right things is like the first step. It's the, it's the easy part. James says, no, real faith. And by that we mean whole life transformation based on the grace of Jesus that actually changes, that actually transforms what we love, how we live, and perhaps most importantly for our purposes today, how we treat one another within our family of faith. And real faith, James points out, has nothing to do with favoritism. In fact, what James is going to show is that favoritism, okay, playing favorites, is not just a mistake, it's not just a sin, it's not just a disobedient act, which it, and a hurtful thing, which it, it's all of those things, but perhaps even more uh, importantly, it is, it is a choice that actually dampens faith. It's perhaps even worse than that. James is going to put it this way. The more favorites we play, the less faith we have. The more favorites we play, the, the less real faith we actually have. These two things, faith and favorites, are, are so incompatible that to have more of one is to have less of the other. They, they, they do not go together. In three specific ways, James points out here. So if you have your Bible... Uh, turn to the book of James. Uh, you can use your table of contents if you need to. Uh, turn to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As I said to you before, James is written to uh, early Christians, uh, specifically Jewish Christians who put their faith in Jesus uh, after Pentecost, or part of the, the early church, uh, and then were scattered due to persecution uh, from the Jewish authorities. And many have left behind family and, and friends and jobs and homes because they worship Jesus, Messiah, risen from the dead, and are now accused of blasphemy for doing that. And they've hung on to their faith so far in the midst of these really difficult circumstances. And I can't imagine how tempting it would have been for them to return to uh, the Judaism of their past. Uh, but these people have said no to that, but they still struggle with whole faith, real faith. And really, for the rest of the letter of James, James is going to address specific ways, specific issues that he sees or is concerned about within this community about how their faith should change how they behave, how they live, okay? And first, he talks about favoritism, and he gives this hypothetical scenario. So just listen again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's verse 1. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down here at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So, he gives this hypothetical to, to illustrate favoritism. I want to focus on the first part of this, okay? James is giving a very straightforward situation. Imagine with me. 
you are here at church on a Sunday morning. That shouldn't be hard because that's what you're doing right now. But you're a greeter. You're like a welcomer. Okay, you're out there. You're, sitting, you're, you're greeting everybody who's coming in. Uh, and uh, James says, imagine you're out there kind of in our lobby. You're greeting people and like Pat Mahomes walks in. Someone really famous, just, just hypothetically. There's a, it's a Monday night game that week, so he can actually make it here. And he walks in, and you shake his hand, and you offer a few schematic thoughts on the offense. Uh, <laughs> like, hey, like win more games, something like that. But you're excited, because this is Pat. This is Pat Mahomes. And so you, you show him you know, where the coffee is, and you give him extra donut holes, and you you take Sterling Skye, his baby daughter, you take her straight to Katie Bagley downstairs, and you tell her, your hands only, no one else touches this child but you, and you, you, know, you brush up against his arm by accident, and you feel the electricity coming off of it. You have him sign your form.life book uh, on the Sunday, and you bring him into this room. You bring him right in here, and you push past the crowds of people that want to talk to him, and you put him right here in the front row, right where he's going to get in the soak zone if me or Tom are preaching. It's a place of honor, right? Right up here in front. And you spend all morning fawning over this guy. You do for Pat Mahomes things you have never done for anyone else as they've entered the building. You couldn't do for everyone as they enter the building. And right there, that is the problem. Because James will tell us here, that we can favor the rich or the famous or the influential or we can trust Jesus. But what we cannot do is both. We can favor certain kinds of people or we can trust in Jesus. But what we cannot do is both at the same time. Now, when James talks about the rich, uh, it's not just the materially wealthy that he would have in mind, though that's almost always the case. I think in general, what James is getting at is this is someone who can offer you something, or at least you perceive they can offer you something. Remember, at this time, when James writes this, uh, sociologists uh, and economists who write about this period of history, they, uh, they call it a patron-client world, meaning that getting favor from the powerful and the influential in the ancient Roman world was one of the only ways you could get things done. It was one of the only ways you could generate new business. You could get government approval for projects that you were working on, things like that. You needed influence to get the right people to approve of what you were doing or to meet other people, okay? So you, what you would do is you would cuddle up to wealthy, influential people. Now, thankfully, our world today doesn't work anything like that, right? We don't, we don't worry about that. That's not how things work today. We are not tempted at all to treat powerful, influential, wealthy people better than others. We never say things like, this person can give me the contacts I need to make my business thrive, so I'm going to treat them differently than my other friends. I'm going to treat them differently than my other uh, clients. This person, we never say things like, this person has the resources to really turn things around for me, so I'm going to cut corners on this deal just this one time, just to build a relationship. We never say things like, this person actually makes me feel really, really good about myself. They make me feel popular. They make me feel important and loved and cared for. So what I'm going to do is participate with them in something I know I shouldn't do just this once, just to fit in with them, okay? Of course, of course we're tempted to do these things. 
Of course, we're tempted to show favoritism to someone, to anyone, whether that's in the church family or in other places in our lives, an employee over another, a friend over another, even a family member over another, to get something from them. And listen, how, how we treat a certain kind of client or a fellow student or a customer over another is an indicator of something. This is what James is saying. It's an indicator. It is an indicator that you and I may believe in our heart of hearts something perhaps we would never say out loud, which is that this person or this kind of person has something to offer me that Jesus himself does not. And James's point, again, is that when we favor the wealthy or the influential or the famous or the popular or the cool or the put together over other people, fundamentally our problem is that we lack trust in Jesus to give us what we think this person can give us. So, what, so I want us to do a little self-evaluation. Ask yourself, whose favor are we after? Whose favor are we after? I bet if, if we all took a minute and thought about this, there's somebody in our lives, there's somebody that when they walk into the room, we sit up a little straighter, we listen a little harder, we work a little better, we're more tempted to bend the rules for them, to accommodate them, more likely to compromise for them. There's somebody. And we do it not out of the goodness of our hearts toward them, it's because we want something from them. We want their attention. We want their favor. And let me put it even stronger, okay? There's somebody in our lives whose affirmation we would rather have than Jesus' affirmation. Someone we'd rather spend time with than Jesus. Someone we would rather meet at church on a Sunday morning other than Jesus. And here's the deal. We can do that. We can pursue that kind of person. Uh, we can live for that person's attention or their affection or their favor. We can ignore James's warning here. We can do that. But what you cannot do is have your cake and eat it too. You can show favoritism, but you cannot have faith in Jesus at the same time. The moment we begin to favor certain people because of what we think that they can do for us whom we, and over other people whom we perceive cannot do something for us, we have diminished our real faith and trust in Jesus. They, they do not go together. And this is where James goes next, okay? So same scenario, but the opposite side of the coin. You're greeting again. You're here at church on next Sunday. Pat no-shows. Typical, right? After everything you did for him, doesn't come back. But then you're about to come inside, service is about to start. You look out on the parking lot and you see somebody show up with like a shopping cart and it's full of junk and they walk up to the front door and they walk in and you say hello, but mostly you just want them to move on. You're trying to pass them on to, right, to the next volunteer, but they come to you and they ask you where the coffee is and is there something to eat here and where's the bathroom and all that stuff. And so you reluctantly show them around and you make sure they don't take too much of anything because you're ready for them to take advantage of you. And they don't smell particularly good. So you sit them as far back in the room as you possibly can, even though it's clear that they can't see or hear very well back there. 
but you don't necessarily care that much because if they never came back, it would be a relief to you. The problem is how you felt about Pat Mahomes the week before is exactly how Jesus feels about this person. And you have no idea. Because as James points out here, we can ignore the poor or we can love who Jesus loves, but we cannot do both. We can ignore certain kinds of people or we can love who Jesus loves. And here's how we know that Jesus, how Jesus would feel about this person. Listen to James verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Incredibly powerful verse there. And that, listen, God loves everybody. James is not saying that God plays favorites with the poor or only shows grace to the poor. In fact, we know that there are materially wealthy people in the congregation that he's addressing here. James explicitly talks to them in chapter 1, verse 10. God does not play favorites. That's not James's point. But God has chosen those who are poor in the world, meaning according to the world. People who are poor, people who lack, people who have nothing to offer according to the world. He's, God's chosen those people to be rich, in his kingdom. And James knows and his readers know that lots and lots of poor, discarded, ignored people come to faith in Jesus. That was so prevalent in the early Christian movement that uh, uh, early pagan philosophers who would argue against Christianity pointed out that only, uh, like only the discarded came to faith. And they said, this faith is, is for poor people. No one of class, no one of intelligence should join this movement. That was an argument against Christianity early on. And that may look like favoritism to the world. It looks like God loves poor people, he loves poor people the most. It looks like that, but only because the world has never shown favor to these people. And so here's what I mean. God's love for the poor says less about him and his priorities than it does about us and ours. Does that make sense? You see my point? James is reminding us that the, the very people, the same people that we tend to ignore or look down upon or avoid or judge are the very people Jesus goes out of his way to welcome into his spiritual family. This theme, by the way, James chapter 2, verse 5, the point James is making is all over the Bible. This theme of reversal the low made high, the high made low, the poor, the widow, the orphan, God choosing what is foolish and poor and downtrodden to shame the wise and the rich and the well-to-do. It is everywhere in the Bible. It's not just James. It's Paul. It's Moses. It's the prophets. It's Jesus himself. The people nobody wants around are the very people Jesus wants to be around. That's James's point, chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if Jesus loves these people, then just like we would love and serve Pat Mahomes if he showed up, we must love and serve them. But would we? Do we? Okay, second evaluative question. Okay, who do you not want to serve? And I can't answer this question for you, but I think we all have an answer. More than likely, 
It is someone who is vulnerable. It is someone who needs more help, someone who doesn't naturally fit in, someone who is perhaps not easy to love and to serve and to get to know. Being poor in this sense that we're talking about is not just, again, it's not just material wealth. It's mostly that, but it also means people who are hard to love for one reason or another. This person, I don't want to serve them because they need so much more help from me. Or we blame them for their circumstances and we have no empathy for them. We think, and maybe we could never say this out loud, but if we really examined our hearts, we, how we really feel about certain people is it's your fault you're poor, it's your fault you're a single parent, it's your fault you're an immigrant, it's your fault you're unemployed, it's your fault you're an addict, so you do not deserve my attention and my respect and my love and my service. That's for somebody else. Okay, who is that for you? And how do we grow in our ability to see them as Jesus sees them? Truly, Because if we take James seriously, Jesus sees them as potential sons and daughters, as heirs of his eternal, glorious kingdom inheritance. That's how Jesus sees them. Do we see them that way? Whoever whoever them is for you. Okay, and this is our last point. Because we will not see others that way until we hear what James says next. Okay, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So James here, he's reminding us of something Jesus taught. Jesus taught us, he said the whole law, all of God's revelation to humanity about how to live is summarized in two commandments to love God, and to love our neighbor as ourself. The whole Bible, he says, the whole will of God for your life is in those two commands. If you're ever unclear about what God wants you to do in any given situation, he wants you to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that law, okay, that summary, James here calls the law of liberty. He says that that law demands that we show no favoritism because that is not to love God or to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this law of liberty, this name is really important and stands out in the letter of James. It is not a law of obligation. As Jesus followers, we don't love our neighbor, especially our our vulnerable neighbor, because we have to do that. We do it because we know that our faith, our real faith, when it works itself out in love of others, is a response to the love and freedom we have received in Jesus, which liberated us from the consequences of sin and death. That's, that's the foundation of the gospel story, right? His sacrifice on our behalf sets us free. A law of liberty now on the heart. That's what Christians do. That's what real faith is. It's obedience to God's law of liberty because we want to. 
and sets us free. And we'll be judged by that. Our ability to love our neighbor, to serve one another without favoritism, is a sign. It is an indicator of whether we have received mercy from Jesus at all. That, as James points out, he says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And here's, I think, James's whole point about what real faith is. We can, we can justify ourselves or we can receive mercy, but we cannot do both. And this is really where James, I think, has been going all along. It is this fundamental point. The real problem underneath favoritism and all the ways it manifests itself in our lives, the fundamental contradiction between favoritism and real faith is this. Anytime we show selfish favoritism to the rich among us or we show indifference and neglect to the poor among us, we have forgotten how much mercy we have received in Jesus. We have pulled them apart. We have failed to apply the gospel we received to how we treat one another. We've lost touch with our own poverty before God, our own vulnerability before God, our own unlovableness that the Lord of the universe had to deal with on the cross of grace. We've forgotten. Because the more we internalize that and believe in Jesus' mercy for us, the more mercy, the more love, the more compassion and service will be evident in us toward others. There's a direct relationship between how loved we know we are to how much mercy we show to those around us, regardless of their circumstances. This is why, by the way, think about it. Jesus always points to the ones who love him best. And he notes that the ones who love him best are the ones who have received the most mercy. Jesus' point is not that sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors needed more mercy than the religious teachers and the Pharisees and the scribes. That was not his point. His point was that these are more willing to receive mercy than those others. It's also why the poor and the oppressed are almost always examples of faith in the Bible and why James highlights them here again. They know their need for mercy. Therefore, they receive more mercy. It is those of us, most probably most of us in this room, who seem to have all that we need, who are at most risk of forgetting how much mercy it took to get us in this room right now. If and when we find that we feel better about ourselves, okay, when we justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to certain kinds of people, if we find ourselves thinking, well, at least we aren't poor, at least we aren't broken, at least we are natural citizens here. At least I'm not a single mom. I'm not, an ad- I'm not in the unemployment line. I'm popular is the precise moment when we must reconsider ourselves in the light of grace as, as, as with the imagery Jesus gives for who we really are. Rebels, outcasts, exiles, now brought near by the blood of Jesus. So here's what I want us to do. Last question. Ask yourself... Who needs your mercy? Who in your life needs your mercy? This word mercy is very close to other biblical ideas of of love and compassion, forgiveness, grace, patience. 
Who needs your mercy? Where are you withholding mercy? And remember, it was Jesus himself who said, Blessed, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In a world, in a time when it is so easy to judge, to judge the poor for being poor, or the promiscuous for being lonely, or the immature for getting nowhere, or the addict for being broken, or the the loser for having no friends, when it's so easy to judge, who needs your mercy? And remember with me that mercy has triumphed over judgment in our lives. If you are here and you belong to Jesus, what you are declaring to the world by your faith is that God himself came to earth to live and die and rise again because of you. And that his mercy triumphed over judgment in your life. If that is true, where does our mercy need to triumph over judgment? Who do you not want to serve? Who do you not want to forgive? Who do you not want to acknowledge? Who do you not want to love because it's hard or it's uncomfortable or it's inconvenient? And listen, I'm not talking about being best friends with everyone or giving trust where it's not deserved or not having boundaries with certain people in your life. What I'm asking is who needs your mercy? Because we have received so much mercy. And Jesus will never withhold mercy from us no matter how hard we are to love when that promise grabs a hold of our lives, when we see on the cross the mercy of Jesus on our behalf, when we believe that scandalous mercy triumphed over our judgment, then we understand what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the merciful, because they are most like him. And may that be true of us. Let's pray to him now. Father, thank you that in, in, in our lives, for those of us here who love your son Jesus, that his mercy triumphed over our judgment. And Holy Spirit, I pray you move in and among your people to make us people of mercy. People who love to serve. Any and all kinds of people. Because we see ourselves in any and all kinds of people. And we know that the blessed life, the happy life, is the one who shows much mercy. So Holy Spirit, work in and among us. Father, hear our prayers. We pray them all in Jesus' name. Amen.